This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, again, my name is Wesley Jackson. I'm a PhD student here in the film and media department. Um, and I want to, again, uh, welcome Professor Michael Berry, who was here years ago, and I am not the only person who was excited to see him back here. Uh, he's coming up from UCLA, so give him a good round of applause. Yeah. So again, this is a really, really stunning film. Um, I wanted to start by kind of placing this within the series that we're uh, you know, going through right now. So this is a new wave series, but obviously this is not uh, part of something called the Chinese New Wave. Uh, and it could have been. There are other kind of Chinese language new movements in the 1980s, Hong Kong New Wave, Taiwan New Cinema. Uh, this is, you know, a, a fifth generation film instead. And I wonder if you can just give us a sense of what that means and how does the, that name, which kind of explicitly links itself to previous Chinese filmmakers, you know, change the way that we think about these films and view them today. First of all, thank you, Wesley, for inviting me here. And it's great to be back at UCSB. And... Uh, yeah, just a pleasure to see this incredible film on a big screen sure. uh, after so many years. And you mentioned the, your question about the fifth generation. What does this term mean? And technically speaking, uh, the fifth, I, I would say that this is the new wave in China. And there are basically, if we look at Chinese language cinemas, there's three new waves. Mm-hmm. So we have, of course, the first one would be Hong Kong new wave. Uh, basically late 70s, around 1978 or so. You've yep. got a group of filmmakers who had studied mostly abroad and Great Britain and America, they come back, work in the television industry, and they start uh, the first Chinese new wave, which is the Hong Kong new wave, much more commercially kind of based than some of the other new waves. A few years later, 1982, 83, you have the new Taiwan cinema, which is the Taiwan new wave. And then two or three years after that, you have this, which is the fifth generation. And in our best estimation, the fifth generation really is the equivalent of the PRC or the mainland Chinese new wave. And the name, the fifth generation, refers to the group of filmmakers that graduated from the Beijing Film Academy, which up until this point had been basically the main training ground for filmmakers in China. And it's the class that entered in 1978, graduated in 1982. It would include uh, the most iconic names are Chen Kaige, uh, the director of First Yellow Earth, later For All My Concubine, Zhang Yimou, the director of this film, uh, Li Xiaohong, Tian Zhuang Zhuang, a whole collective. And they essentially really redefined what Chinese language cinema was up until that point. And so, and the fifth generation, before the fifth generation, you really don't, don't talk about generations. And right. it's after the fifth generation, all of a sudden, this label comes into being. And then afterwards, we have the sixth generation, about a decade later. And then we retroactively start labeling previous generations, the fourth generation, the third generation. But, I mean, I've talked to filmmakers in China of those generations who are still unclear about where the demarcation lies the for the are. first, second, yeah. third, and fourth generations. But the fifth generation, very clear. It's the most clearly defined, yeah. and it is this group associated with the Beijing Film Academy. So it's still kind of a way of coming up with a name for something that's new and uh, trying to sort of define what's going on in a sense of it's clearly a break from what kind of came before, yeah. even though it's not really called the new wave. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the educational context that really backs uh, all these filmmakers as they're coming out of um, you know, their, their first kind of experiences at the Beijing Film Academy following kind of the Cultural Revolution so this, uh, this group obviously drew from influences that were not only Chinese, but also kind of beyond the borders of China. 
Uh, and since we're talking about, again, a new wave series that kind of moves mm-hmm. from place to place at different time, sure. and even within kind of Chinese language spaces, you know, these movements tend to kind of impact each other, influence mm-hmm. each other. Are there other global films, filmmakers, uh, or film theories that really impacted the fifth generation? Oh, there's so many things that impacted this generation. You know, uh, this generation, uh, a lot of the filmmakers, what's so special about them is they kind of grew up in the socialist era. They're born right around the time of the founding of New China. So late 40s, early 50s, a lot of the fifth generation uh, filmmakers are born during this time. Just as they're coming of age, it's the mid-60s, the Chinese Cultural Revolution breaks out, and they all spend their formative years wrapped up in depending on politically where their family stood, sure. you know, either as a Red Guard or as a victim of the Cultural Revolution, but they went through that whole socialist period. Then when they're really reaching kind of young adulthood, this is when the reform era opens up. And so 1978, Deng Xiaoping launches the open door policy. All of a sudden, all of these new Western exciting things start coming into China for the first time in four decades. Yep. And so it's not just film. Film, of course, is a big part of it. But all of a sudden, for the first time, they can go to bookstores and read Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Freud. They can go to the foreign language bookstore and buy CDs from the Beatles and from... Mm. Uh, I mean, there was no rock and roll in China during the socialist. All of a sudden, rock and roll is there. All of these, you know, Wham! Found that right, right before this film was released, Wham! Uh, is the first Western band to have a large-scale concert tour of China. These are the kind of things that are percolating in the air. Mm. And then alongside all of these new, exciting Western ideas that this generation is very heavily influenced by, you also have a rediscovery of Chinese cultural roots and traditions which mm. had been suppressed during mm. the socialist period. So Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Tai Chi, uh, uh, you know, all of these things that under Mao had been targeted all come back. And you see these different influences kind of melding together and having a really profound influence. And this is really the kind, the 80s, this is 1987 or so that this film is released, um, is really a... An intellectual watershed moment, it's, mm. and, and this film really is a big part of that that movement. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I mean one of the things that often happens in these moments of kind of you know great opening and, and newness, very often filmmakers, and we see this with a couple of the other new wave films that we've been watching, they end up making stories about young people in the contemporary time period, right? And even in uh, kind of new Taiwan cinema, you see a sure. lot of that. But this is a film set in the past. What is the kind of importance of having this film set, you know, before the revolution in a very rural space? Uh, why that you know, choice, and, and why would that be part of something that we would call a new wave? Sure. So, in the immediate aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, there was a film movement. It wasn't actually just film, but it was across the arts. It was in literature. It was in painting. And it was called the Scar Movement. And when we talk about the scar, actually in socialist literature, socialist films, it was, there was actually a trope of revealing the scar. Mm. Well, if, you, if anyone's seen Red Detachment of Women Soldiers, at one point the female heroine tries to join the Red Army and they ask her, what's your credentials? And she says, my credentials. She pulls her shirt open to reveal a scar on her neck. This is my credentials. Mm-hmm. And so the scar was kind of this powerful testimony to all of the suffering that people had endured in the pre-1949 era. Mm-hmm. But in 78, the scar takes on a new meaning. It means the tortures that people had endured actually under socialism, especially during the Cultural Revolution. And so you have this very important movement called the scar literature movement, scar film, and that's very contemporary. Mm-hmm. And those are all a whole series of contemporary films. But a few years after this movement had picked up a lot of speed, and it really it was a, it was a 
way for people collectively to express their angst, their sorrow, as a kind of a catharsis, this, this SCAR movement. But at some point, a few years after it uh, had been launched, Deng Xiaoping actually shut it down. He even had a saying, you know, crying and whining isn't going to get you anywhere, and we need to move forward. Yeah. And that curtailed that movement, and it also, to a large degree, curtailed contemporary attempts to portray traumatic history in that manner. Mm. And so people had to start finding alternatives to tap into that, that, sure. that common memory. And so uh, a lot of this started in literature and then would filter into film. And so after the SCAR movement, you have something called reflection literature, which mm-hmm. is looking back at the, those traumatic moments through a more reflective lens. And then eventually it transitions into a movement called the search for roots movement. Mm-hmm. And it starts in literature and it gravitates very quickly into film. And this is very much part of that larger trend of search for roots, searching for cultural roots, searching philosophically for what's wrong with Chinese culture that would bring us to this point where we could have a cultural revolution, where we could have, you know, all, you know, four decades of all of this, you know, the Great Leap Forward, the anti-rightist movement, one after another, all of these political movements and all of the injustices that people were subjected to. And the search for roots was this kind of much deeper investigation into Mm. what makes the Chinese people who they are Mm. and what's, is there something wrong with the roots of our culture. And a lot of writers were asking these kind of questions. And one of them was Mui An, who wrote yeah. this novel, Red Sorghum, which this film is adapted uh, from. And so that's, I think, part of what's happening here is going back in history to look deep into our cultural roots. Where do we come from? Mm-hmm. So even the film begins, you know, this is a story about my grandfather and my grandmother. And it's yeah. already you have this kind of three-generational distancing yeah. uh, of someone looking back and thinking back about their familial history, but in some ways you could even look at it as a metaphor for the national history. Yeah. And then even, I mean, even the voiceover still places part of the narrative in the much more present moment, right? I mean, it seems to be kind of narrated by somebody living at a time that was much closer to the actual making of the film and the writing of the novel, but then looking back to kind of these histories. And I do want to talk a little bit more about the novel, but before we move off, I just want to kind of move away from the fifth generation question. Hmm. You know, in what ways do you see Red Sorghum as a film being really representative of the fifth generation films? And are there things that about it that seem very distinct uh, or different from kind of what would be classical or iconic fifth generation films? Well, I think when you look at the fifth generation, the group as a collective goes through different phases. And I think this film is very much representative of the fifth generation during this phase. Hmm. So... Uh, basically, in 1984 through, say, 88, 89, this is kind of a very distinct phase. And you can include within this films like Chun Kai Gu's uh, Yellow Earth, King of the Children, uh, this film, of course. Uh, there was a whole series that were looking back at Chinese history from this period and often kind of riffing off socialist themes. Mm-hmm. So this is, one of the themes here is the uh, Sino-Japanese War. That was a... Sure major subject of countless war films during the socialist period. So when I say socialist period, basically 1949 through 1978, uh, that kind of high socialist period, where there were, this was, this was, there were so many films about this, and yet they kind of deconstructing that model and doing something very different than what you would see in a typical socialist realist war film about the Japanese, which was all about heroism and sacrifice, martyrdom, uh, very propagandistic, uh, very much made in line with Mao's ideology that he laid out in 1942's Yan'an Talks on Art and Literature. And if you're not familiar with that document, you should look at it, because this is a speech he gave in 1942, where Mao basically said that all art, literature, 
comic books, any kind of you know painting, all types of creative work should serve the workers, peasants, and the soldiers. It should be clearly uh, digestible to the most the people with the lowest level of education, and it should be socially engaged, that should be pedagogical, that should be, uh, and basically, and then at the same time in this document, he says, art for art's sake, you know, art that's nihilistic, art that's creative, arts that's escape, that should all be crushed. And this is the document that basically puts forward this blueprint for how all creative life is going to conduct itself for the next four decades. And so one big part of that in that document is that Good guys and bad guys, they should be clearly delineated. You should yeah. watch a film and should be immediately identifiable. Who is the villain? Who is the hero? And there's even makeup to identify these things. Like if you look at the model operas during the Cultural Revolution, it only takes a couple seconds to tell who's the, the villain, who's the traitor to China, who's the hero. And all art was supposed to operate by this set of rules. And a film like this, so it takes certain tropes, like this context of the Sino-Japanese War, yeah. But no longer are the heroes and villains so quickly and readily identifiable, yeah. and and every and everything is kind of moving to a kind of hazy zone yeah. where people are surprise surprise humanistic and yeah. they're complex yeah. and they're layered. Uh, Yellow Earth is another good example because the main protagonist in Chen Kaiger's Yellow Earth, which is often looked at as the first film of the fifth generation, the main protagonist was a soldier, a PLA soldier. Yep. Now, of course, again, if you go back to the socialist era, that was the typical subject matter to have a socialist. PLA soldier hero, but in that film, he's kind of impotent. He doesn't really do anything. And the one thing that he can do and that you would hope he would do is there's a poor girl who's supposed to have an arranged marriage, and she's trying like hell to escape, and she wants this PLA soldier to take her to the PLA camp and join the army and escape from this terrible fate that she's locked into. And he says, "Uh, I I don't know, let me go back and see if my superiors agree and she in the meantime kills herself or, or, or drowns um, and so again the so-called hero turns out to be someone extremely ineffectual and and all of these films i think are playing off what those models were that these this generation of filmmakers grew up with grew up as with. kids seeing the hero soldiers the martyrs i mean yeah. kids of Zhang Yimou's generation when they were a teenager they didn't want to be doctors or lawyers. They wanted to be soldiers. Soldier mm-hmm. heroes were mm-hmm. what they were indoctrinated with. Yeah. And here they're taking some of those models and kind of deconstructing them and reassembling them in a new context. I think the last time I watched this film, too, I'd forgotten how, unfortunately, flawed and inept they are as soldiers, too. At the end, when they even go for their revenge, you know, the, the cannon blows up and, and it kills the people yeah. who are trying to operate it. Uh, you know, the bombs don't go off. Nothing really works, you know, yeah. which, which would have been inconceivable in any of these films. Mm-hmm. 15 years before that, which would have been impossible to kind of imagine. Um, I want to, I mean, you, you talk a little bit about, you know, Mao's ideology about uh, the ways in which films should kind of be easily digestible. Obviously, as you mentioned, this film is not really like that. And I, yeah. and I think the other thing that this series kind of explores in terms of new waves is, is the importance of international film festivals to sort of the existence of these new waves, to the definition of these new waves, the ability for these films to get picked up and seen by audiences Definitely. that exist internationally. Um, this film obviously opened at the Berlin Film Festival. Even at the beginning, you know, it, it opens with a shot of the Golden Bear, right? The, the, mm-hmm. this, this film opens with that, and the, and the fact that it won the top award for that, which was a top kind of mainland film um, award that had been won at that time. Um, and so, you know, one of the longstanding critiques of Zhang Yimou is that some of his earlier films were aimed at international audiences mm-hmm. more than they were aimed even at local ones. Uh, do you think that 
you know, when he was making this film, he's predominantly targeting a film festival audience. Do you see clear traces of this uh, film being tried, him trying to have the film play very well in China? Uh, or does it kind of feel like something in between? You know, for years, Zhang Yimou, especially during this period, say mid-80s, all the way into the 90s, deep into the 90s, one of the most, the, the loudest criticisms that he faced within China was you're making films to appease foreign audiences. And mm-hmm. he would get this all the time. And I even interviewed him years ago and asked him about this. And, and he, even, he even said, you know, he was almost flabbergasted that, you know, people seem to think I'm in some room scheming. What are the foreigners going to like, you know, to be, yep. cook up something for foreign audiences. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. I try to make, you know, the best films I can make and tell the best stories I can make. Um, and I don't, I think, especially for his very, this was his directorial debut. Right. What happened later, we can debate. But at least at this stage, I think he was, was indeed really just trying to make the best film he could make. And, uh, and it's full of vitality. It's really kind mm-hmm. of a creative explosion. And it's not just Zhang Yimou, but, I mean, you look at the cast. This is Gong Li's debut as an actress, and she would later go on to be the face of Chinese cinema internationally and within China, you know, basically throughout the rest of the late 80s all sure. the way through the 90s. Yeah. Uh, the cinematographer, Gu Changwei, would rise up to become probably one of the most influential cinematographers of his generation. Sure. He was also a member of the fifth generation, yeah. uh, a, a classmate of Zhang Yimou's. Actually, they were both cinematography majors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Zhang Yimou, for those who don't know, started off as a cinematographer. His first film he worked on, or one of the first ones, was Chun Kai Ge's Yellow Earth. Yeah which he shot, uh, and then this here he is moving to onto a, a director. This is also the era he actually acts in his first film. He mm-hmm. has a starring role in Old Well, directed by Wu Tianming. So just within the span of a few years, I mean, it's just, when I say explosive, think of sure. you know, one individual uh, winning Best Actor Award for a acting role, winning yep. Best Cinematography Awards and Directorial Awards for three totally different films. Yeah. Um, this really was a kind of renaissance moment for, I think, Zhang Yimou and the fifth generation, what, where it was going at this I mean, there's moment. There's a lot of fl- fluidity in those roles, as you kind yeah. of point out. Even Gu Changwei later becomes a director himself. I mean, yes. a lot of these people kind of move from one thing to the next. And, uh, yeah, that's a really important piece of that as well. So yeah. I want to then turn a little bit to the novel, which we've you know, t- touched on a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I had not read the novel until this year. It is a really brutal, intense read. Uh, incredibly graphic violence, sex, mm-hmm. anatomical descriptions. Mm-hmm. It, it has, you know, a sweeping historical scope. Uh, and I wonder, you know, Moyen, this was also his first novel. The film was kind of coming out, uh, you know, shortly after the novel was released. I wonder, was the novel much of a sensation in China? Was it widely read? Was it widely known before the film kind of came out? Um, or was it, were they kind of contemporaneous? Or did this really popularize the novel? How did that sort of timeline break down? Uh, the novel was already very well known before the film, and the novel is much longer. Uh, it's basically, you could even look at it as a series of interlinked novellas, in a sense. Yeah. And this is adapted just from two of the novellas yeah. included in this much Only broader... Only a tiny piece of the second yes. one, really. Yeah. And, uh, and Moyen, I mentioned these different movements. So you have the scar, scar literature movement, the search for roots, and... This was definitely one of the major representative works of Search for Roots literature during the 1980s. This was also, the 80s was also a period in China they referred to as the culture fever, mm. where there was just these, you know, so much energy happening in the cultural sphere, you know, poetry, misty poets, the stars collective in art, the, uh, you know, these literary movements we mentioned, the fifth generation, basically across the board, there was just 
a creative explosion taking place. And if you look at the keywords of the 80s, mm. red sorghum is definitely one of the keywords that I think a lot of people think of. And probably they think first of the novel. Mm. And then this, this film, of course, capitalized on that and pushed it to a new to new heights. And Moyen actually participated. He was one of the screenwriters on this work. Mm. Um, but it was a very, there was a lot of fluidity between literature, between film. Actually, a lot of the fifth generation, their major works were all adapted from major literary works. Yeah. And I think that if you look at uh, probably the classic works, they're all adaptations of writers who were writing in the 80s in the middle of this cultural fever, this mm. uh, way, new wave. And it also makes sense for somebody who's making his way from being a cinematographer to being a first-time director to mm-hmm. want to bring in a story that is, you know, very richly told, that is, uh, you know, put together by a, a great novelist. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about Moyen. So the novel's setting, obviously, is extraordinarily mm-hmm. important. It's this yeah. area called Northeast Galmi Township, which is a fictionalized version of the region where Moyen actually grew up. Um, how would you kind of describe Moyen's treatment of this place and of the history of this place? Mm-hmm. And how does Zhang Yimou t- attempt to really bring this setting to life on screen? Yeah. I mean, it's become one of the most iconic kind of fiction. It's, it's a real place, as you said, but it's almost in terms of fictional settings. Right. Uh, it's really become this very important site for not just Moyan's work, but the kind of contemporary Chinese cultural imagination. Northeast Gaomi Township mm-hmm. is just kind of etched into the collective memory of a lot of people. There are theme parks now in Moyan's hometown, especially after he won the Nobel Prize, which uh, capitalized on his literary universe. And it's and it's a place that often he, his works are more historical and mm. rather than contemporary. Mm. They're often imbued with a really brutal violence where he'll talk about some of the more disturbing moments in modern Chinese or pre-modern Chinese history, late imperial history especially, the Boxer Rebellion, mm-hmm. uh, the Cultural Revolution, the, uh, well, the Great Leap Forward, famine, murders, yeah. beheadings. I mean, you, there, he has a, there's a real taste for this kind of brutal violence and, and the aesthetics of violence in his fictional universe. And then that's juxtaposed with, as you see, this almost ethereal beauty Lush. of, of yeah, the, okay. the, the, the sorghum fields. And, and I think Zhang Yimou really tried to capture a lot of that through his cinematography and through a lot of these shots here. Yeah, and it feels like he, you know, he slows things down. I mean, the novel moves at a weirdly breakneck, kind of mm. madcap you know, energy and speed to it. It just jumps back and forth between generations and places and people. Yeah. And, and this, felt, again, as I was watching it today, just the slowness of some of the rituals, uh, the making of the wine, the, the drinking, the songs, all these sort of things. Jaimo kind of lingers over them at a, at a pace that sort of draws out some of their, I don't know, iconic, uh, really kind of mythical almost uh, layers, which I think is really, really powerful. Um, you also touched on the fact that Moyen continued, of course, uh, to go on and win the Nobel Prize for Literature. He wrote and released new novels every couple of years. Um, no one has really tried mounting any other major, unless I've forgotten, mm. forgotten something, any other major filmic adaptations. There was a recent Red Sorghum TV series. Mm. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think we haven't seen more of his films kind of make it to screen or more of his stories make it to screen? Do you think that there's any coming potentially in the near future? There have been a couple. There have uh, been? Okay. Yeah. There was a director, Huo Jianqi, who did an adaptation of uh, one of Mo Yan's short stories, which was ah, okay. adapted a few years ago. There have been television miniseries adaptations yeah, of yeah. some of his work. Moyen himself has adapted other works of his own for television, even okay. before he won the Nobel Prize. But as we talked about, a lot of, Moyen, his work is highly critical. He's, he's very much taking over the, 
the tradition of, you guys know Lu Xun, the father of modern Chinese literature, who was, had a very critical sense of what the Chinese cultural tradition means. He actually characterized Chinese cultural tradition as a cannibalistic tradition, whereby people are consuming themselves, and but the whole notion of Confucianism is one that's based on it's a, it's a very brutal system, and he, and, and Moyan very much fits into that Lucianian trajectory. So he's very much critical of his compatriots in the Chinese cultural tradition and cultural history, and he portrays some of the most disturbing aspects of Chinese culture in his fiction. Probably one of the best examples, he has an incredible novel called The Republic of Wine, mm-hmm. which starts off as a hard-boiled detective novel about an investigator who hears about alleged cases of cannibalism, child cannibalism, basically a whole town of people consuming children. And he begins to investigate that. Just from that premise, you already know, uh, this isn't really great material for a, yeah, you know, yeah. a popcorn thriller than yeah. at the multiplex. Yeah. And so his works, because of that very critical sense, and because in China there's different levels of censorship for film versus literature, you can sure. get away with a lot more in a novel yeah. than you can in a mainstream film. And so uh, I think that's also an issue. And some of the historical moments that he looks at, like the Boxer Rebellion, the yeah. Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, are basically taboo to be subjects for films. Yeah. So it's kind of a precarious position to be in. Yeah. And it also feels like when you achieve a certain level of literary or, or filmic or, or sort of cultural um, not, not, even fame's not even quite the right thing, but if you uh, acclaim, then you get sort of a pass for telling some of these stories in ways that uh, perhaps a, a new writer would not have as much kind of leeway. And Moyan yeah. obviously was much celebrated when he won the Nobel Prize, um, even in China, and so he, he's, he occupies a really interesting position. Um, but you were talking you know, a bit about the way in which he, he confronts these incredibly brutal moments, intense moments of uh, historical... We can probably, I think, also use the word trauma. You've mm. written about kind of representations of trauma in literature and in film. Uh, this film obviously clearly engages with that, with wartime mm. trauma. It's not engaging with a particular historical battle, as far as I know. Um, you know, it's kind of an allegorical representation or, you know, depiction of a battle that um, you know, came up from the mind of Moyen. Mm. Uh, so what do you see, I think, as the you know, notable about this film's address of trauma uh, in, in mm. Chinese history and trauma specifically in China's war against Japan? Um, you know, the novel addresses other 20th century traumas. Do you feel any of that sort of... Uh, Mm. kind of lingering address uh, actually present in this film uh, that we can kind of mm. talk about? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think on, uh, on like, like you said, the way he lingers on certain moments, right, mm. and spends a lot of time in the winemaking uh, rituals in the, that, the, the flaying ritual, yeah. um, I think he really tries to open up a space for us to think about in terms of the Japanese uh, to think about the Chinese response, to think about, again, vis-a-vis the representations that Zhang Yimou and Moyan's generation grew up with, which mm. are just you know this kind of blind heroism and sacrificing yourself for the nation. He kind of creates a much more layered and nuanced and reflective look on how do real humans put in a situation when you, you either you, you yourself face death or you flay someone alive. I mean, a question like that... Yeah. Uh, what do you do when you face a situation like that? And I think he brings this kind of human, human element back into the, into the sphere when we're looking at a, at a moment like that. And so I think that's a big part of it, bringing, you know, another thing about the cultural wave in the 80s was this renewed look at humanism and this mm. humanistic wave. And I think you can see a lot of that 
here as well. It's trying to strip away all of the stereotypes in the black and white ways which history is usually looked at and try to tease out the nuances of history. At the same time, the Japanese are still very much portrayed as black and white. Uh, I mean, you don't really see them as three-dimensional characters in the film at all. They're still kind of the cardboard cutouts of the enemy. Uh, But at least here you do have a much more nuanced look at the, the Chinese protagonists. And thinking about the kind of Chinese protagonists, again, we kind of have the setting of a family that kind of is the thing that we follow through. Um, why do you think the, the selection of the family, why the focus on that um, as opposed to, again, we could have focused on the wine uh, shop itself or looked at generations of winemaking or things like that. Why, why the option of the family or why the selection of the family? Oh, uh, well, if we want to look at, again, through the Maoist lens, uh, yeah. Mao tried to kind of deconstruct the family. He was, Mao was the father, right? Mao yeah. was the son in everyone's hearts and all of that. Uh, and your loyalty was to the Communist Party. And so bringing the attention back to the family, again, I think ties right into the humanist themes of the film. Yeah. But also it's just more approachable and more, it's an easier way to enter the story. Do you have this multi-generational characters that you know, you have the father-in-law the like only the uh, father that is, is one character as a kind of key role early on in the film mm. and then uh yeah i think it just is makes it more accessible yeah so this film also comes out of the xi'an film studio which was obviously a really important mm. film studio for the film fifth generation uh can you talk a little bit about sort of the production of the film and the ways in which this film would have been and it was shot in part in ningxia which is in fact mm-hmm. far away from uh, northeast galmi township yeah. do you want know much about kind of that production history how did it get financed um all that kind of work uh i can tell you so xian film studio was quite unique in that early on when the fifth generation graduated it's 1982 typically in the chinese film industry you couldn't get a job as a director right out of College. Right. Usually, you would get a job as you know an assistant or doing continuity, and then after a couple of years of continuities, maybe you get a job as an assistant director, and maybe a decade, fifteen years later, you'll direct your first film. Mm-hmm. What happened with the fifth generation was really unique because they had their education had been kind of stunted by the Cultural Revolution, and when they graduated, a lot of them were hungry to really get out there and make films. And so, Yellow Earth was uh, a product of the Guangxi Film Studio, which is a more provincial studio. And the reason Chen Kaigo was able to make that film was because he, if he stayed in Beijing, he, would knew, he knew he'd have to wait 10 years, 15 years, or maybe never get a chance to direct a film. But these smaller film studios were hungry for talent. And so these graduates found work at the smaller studios. And Yellow Earth exploded and was just, you know, was kind of launched this new wave. And Zhang Yimou was the cinematographer. And Wu Tianming, another, he's a fourth generation director who at the time was head of the uh, Xi'an film studio. He saw what Guangxi was doing and he also wanted to get in on the action and recruit some of this young talent. And so he gave the opportunity to Zhang Yimou to direct this film. And, uh, and it was only through kind of a somewhat more, I wouldn't say provincial, but a smaller studio than say Beijing film studio, Shanghai film sure. studio, Changchun film studio. Yeah. Uh, he was able to, as a young director, make a film like this. And another thing that's really interesting about the fifth generation is the kind of collective spirit mm. of this group, which also I think is similar to a lot of other new waves. Yeah. It's not just simply one person, uh, but that group, the fifth generation, that, gener- that we should take the generation seriously because there really was, at least early on, from 1984 to about 1988, a lot of mutual collaboration, a lot of support mm-hmm. among these filmmakers. So again, going back to Yellow Earth, 
Zhang Yimou was the cinematographer. He Chun, another fifth-generation filmmaker, was the art designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zhao Jiping was the composer. All of these guys went to school together, um, and it really was a kind of collective. And here, Gu Changwei, as we for Red Sorghum, was the cinematographer, another classmate of Zhang Yimou's. If you look at the the credits, you'll see other fifth-generation uh, classmates from from that went to school with them. And so early on, it really, really did get the sense that this was a group of artists working together to do something different and innovative and push cinema art in a new, new direction. Uh, later on, as they became more and more successful, they'd kind of break off and there would be increasingly less collaboration as there were sure. during those early films. But at least when this film was made, you could still look at the fifth generation as a collective in a sense. Yeah. And I guess the, one of the other things we talk about, too, when we think about new waves and that makes sense with the film studios, is not only you know, the ability to work together, but also to find, like you said, money. Like, yeah. where do you find money? Who's going to take a chance on kind of these right. younger voices, newer stories that haven't really been proven? And um, yeah. Xi'an Film Studio seems like a really, it's a place, and the Guangxi Film Studio both were places that fostered some of that experimentation yeah. and those younger voices. If I, if I could add a little bit to Please? that, um, another really important to this puzzle is the context, historical context, when this film was made. Mm-hmm. So this is the mid-'80s. And if you look at film today in China, there are two major, major restraints. And one of them is politics, mm-hmm. censorship. Right now, film is dictated under the arm of the Ministry of Propaganda. Uh, propaganda. Mm-hmm. And the other is, of course, the market. Right? You've got to make money with these films. Yep. Uh, the first half of you know, Chinese film history, it was only the first one. You just had propaganda. You didn't have to worry about the market. And now you got both. But during the 80s was this rare moment where both of them kind of retreated in a way. Mm. Because the 80s was probably from 1949 all the way up until today, 2019, the 80s is the single most open and liberal decade in contemporary Chinese history. And so there was a much less stringent kind of demand in terms of the political agenda and were sure. there of course censors were still operating sure. but there was a lot more relative freedom that they could operate in at the same time this is also the period of privatization so a lot of these film studios are just starting to be conscious of the fact they have to earn a profit yep but it hadn't really taken root say when it, when a film like this was made so the imperatives to make money were much less and the imperatives to please the censors were somewhat less and that created a space where you could have incredible artistic experiments like red sorghum like yellow earth like king of the children like uh yeah, uh, Horse Thief, you know, these sure. classic films of the fifth generation. Yeah. Uh, today, you couldn't make films like this in China. Yeah. You really, really couldn't. And so I think that context is really crucial. And we've been talking a bit about, you know, cinematographers and directors, writers, all mm. those things. But I wonder if we could also talk about the actors that were part of this generation. Yeah. Um, obviously, Gong Li and Zhang Wen, both iconic sort of uh, exemplars at this time. Mm. Um, you know, what, what did they bring to these stories? Uh, what kind of collaboration did they kind of have with the people that they're working with as their main directors? Yeah, so both Jiang Wen and Gong Li have worked with Zhang Yimou multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jiang Wen would go on to work with Zhang Yimou on Keep Cool, a kind of contemporary fun comedy, maybe mm-hmm. a, uh, a decade after this. Gong Li was at this point, well, this is the first film that they collaborated with, but she would go on to become his muse of sorts. And she would star in every one of Zhang Yimou's from this point all the way up until around 1995. Mm-hmm. And then there would be a break. And they'd work together maybe on two or three films subsequent to that, like Going Home um, is probably one of, the, one of the best examples. But for this period, uh, she really became Zhang Yimou's muse. And as she developed, I guess, as an actor and built up more cachet, other fifth-generation directors started to cast her, most notably Chen Kaigo and Pharaoh My Concubine. And she really did go on to become the face of 
Chinese cinema, you know, and uh, so this and this was, I mean, it was just an incredible kind of discovery that he made with this film with Gong mm. Li. And then Jiang Wen was active not only in feature films but also television. Yep. A few years after this, he would become a even bigger star in China through a television miniseries called A Beijinger in New York in 1993, which was probably the most watched television miniseries in Chinese television history up until that point. Um, and, and then he would, again, just like the director he worked with, make the transition from uh, in front of the camera, he would become a director. And he's actually, today, he's regarded as probably one of the more creative filmmakers on China's scene, and he's, he's made about a half a dozen feature films by this point. He walks that line between really creative and also box office profitable in a way that's quite difficult to find sometimes, although he's yeah. straight on both sides, I think, at different times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that actually reminds me, too, because I, re-watching this film, one of the things that struck me was kind of the odd sense of humor that the film has. There, there are actually moments of, of great levity within a film that is, in fact, a story that is quite tragic in many different times. Yeah. And I feel like Zhang Wen hits that hits that note pretty well, and Devil's on the Doorstep as well. But I wondered if you could uh, just talk a little bit about the way in which humor operates in this film uh, and the ways in which, yeah, again, within a story that is overwhelmingly sad in so many ways, uh, there are still moments of laughter. Yeah, I mean, it's a film about vitality in many sense. I mean, yeah. and, I, and I think it's, it's almost signaling this cultural rebirth in a sense. And part of that vitality is sex, right? It's a very sexual, sensual film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, part of it is, the, you know, the violence. The skin, I mean, there's red colors. You know, there's a lot of symbolism for red in China. Sure. But just when, you know, when someone's worked up and their face gets red and flushed, uh, I mean, this is a film that's worked up. And these actors are, everything is kind of, operating on all cylinders mm-hmm. and part of that is humor right and so there's and i think Zhang Wen is really great at capturing that kind of subtle humor in his maybe I don't know, sometimes not so subtle ways but right. um but i think that it, it's part of that that this inner vitality and drive of the film yeah i mean he has a, a certain kind of bodiness to his character that is also quite comical um, yeah. and 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 the songs are part of that as well yeah. uh, and those yeah. through those songs like the song you hear when the sedan uh, troop is is sure. walking down the the road in the beginning. I mean that became a, you know everybody was singing that song in you know nineteen late eighties China. That was yeah. the kind of a hit, and there was pop versions of it. Uh, people would get drunk and sing this song, yeah. and it really became part of the the cultural scene of that moment. And I know you know the songs are included as text in the novel. Do you know how they came up with the music for these these sort of songs? Were they actual kind of traditional songs, or are these things that are our creations of Moyen? I think these are creations of Moyad. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And, and I would imagine that Zhao Jiping came up with the melodies, but I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Who he was the composer. Yeah. And then I guess, I mean, to kind of keep moving forward, um, we talked about, you know, Zhang Yimou working with Gong Li over and over again. I wonder if you see any sort of thematic concerns that emerge in this film that he returns to as a director over and over again mm. as he continues his career. Uh, since this is, you know, kind of the first film where he gets to make all the choices, not only the visual choices, which he'd been making, obviously, a lot of as a cinematographer, but also right. kind of narrative choices, choices to do with character. Sure. Uh, are there things that you see in, in this film that really strike you as being iconic of Zhang Yimou's career? I mean, there, there are visual tropes that you see. Like, one of the things is either very high or very low horizon lines, which mm-hmm. you saw all over Yellow Earth, and in this film... Uh, Right after, I think, the scene with the Japanese, there was a stopping where, where the, where the yeah, right, yeah. and the camera pans up, and you have an extremely high horizon line. That's a kind yeah. of trademark yeah. visual signature of Zhang Yimou that you would keep using. In terms of themes, kind of broader themes, 
there would be a series of films where he would investigate kind of the his, modern Chinese history and, yep. and to live, and there, there was a whole series of these films. But eventually when we get to, say, the early 90s, he completely shifts gears, and he goes from this search-for-roots kind of uh, moment to something where he's more pursuing the market a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so films like Keep Cool, which was a comedy, or films sure. like Happy Times, which also was a kind of lighthearted comedy, um, films about nostalgia for the era of Shanghai in the, mm-hmm. say, 1930s and 1940s, where Shanghai he did Shanghai Triad. Triad. Sure. Um, and he starts kind of going through a period of more experimentation, and then eventually, starting around, well, 2002, after the success of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 2000, he went full on in terms of uh, the martial arts, yeah. pre-modern martial arts costume fantasy. And he yeah. makes, uh, basically, and at, th- at that time, the Chinese box office was in a somewhat precarious situation because it was still in its infancy compared to today. Sure. But there was a lot of potential for growth. But when growth was happening, it was exclusively dominated by big blockbuster Hollywood films. Yep. And there were no Chinese films that could compete with the big Hollywood franchises at that time. And he kind of saw a window of opportunity thanks to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because it opened up a possibility for Chinese box office success at the local Chinese box office. Mm -hmm. And he basically felt there's only a couple directors in China that have the cachet to Mm -hmm. make big budget Chinese films for Chinese audiences and get them back into the multiplex. And he Mm -hmm. thought, I have almost a responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of took the Crouching Tiger model, which was a pan-Asian cast, uh, actors, you know, from Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, PRC, that we are broadening the market and market appear, appeal, uh, kind of A-level special effects, CG, wire work, Music. all of those kind of elements yeah. that he was incorporating in, you know, in lavish, beautiful, meticulous set design, costume design. And he often used a lot of the same crew that uh, Ang Lee had used in Crouching mm-hmm. Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And he made in 2002 Hero. 2004, House of Flying Daggers, 2006, Curse of the Golden Flower, one after another, bigger and bigger in terms of their their scope and their budget. Uh, These types of epic, pre-modern, you know, fantasy, wuxia films. And... uh, and he and he's said in numerous interviews that you know his he is, he almost felt a response. He, only he could do it. Maybe Chen Kai Guo, maybe Feng Shaogang, three right. film directors that at that time yeah. could get the budget and the funding to make these kind of films on that scale today. Yeah. Film, there are a lot of directors right out of BFA with no experience helming these types of films yeah. because there's just a, a hunger for uh, young talent to helm these big budget franchise blockbusters in China. But at that time, the market was so small, yeah. uh, he was the one really pushing forward and growing the market in that manner. And now he kind of fluctuates back and forth between the big budget films and smaller, more intimate films. So, for instance, last year he made a film called Shadow, which is actually playing in multiplexes right now yep. in the U.S., which was just like the earlier ones, big budget blockbuster fantasy and then he made One Second which was a more intimate film about the Cultural Revolution which was pulled at the last minute uh, by the Chinese censors and it remains in limbo we don't know if it will ever be commercially screened at least anytime soon yeah well thank you so much for coming out today really appreciate you spending your Saturday with us please join me in thanking thank you for having me pleasure to be back You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.